welcome back to another episode of the Cardboard Herald, my chance to talk with creative gamers and game creators, and I have with me the return of the one, the only, the bearded rogue of breaking into board games. Welcome back to the show, Tony. Uh, it's great to be back. Yeah, man. You you have a new elevated status. It may not feel like that to you, but to me, I'm like, whoa, Tony Miller has gone from the guy who was promoting Fire in the Library before the Kickstarter on this show to being the guy who is official co-designer of a published board game that you can hold in your very hands. Does that feel different to you? Oh boy, does it. It was just a little over a year ago, the last time we talked. Um, and we were, uh, I think we were just about to launch the Kickstarter. I don't think it was actually up yet. Um, and, uh, there was lots of, um, Lots of, uh, I guess, trepidation that things were going to go the way we wanted to, like um, Carla at Weird Giraffes, our publisher, and John, my co-designer, and everybody. We were pretty confident in what we were putting up there, but we weren't really sure what the response was going to be, and we have been overwhelmed with the just positive nature of the response pretty much across the board. Um so, like, the Kickstarter did amazingly well, and then we get all the way to uh, now, when all the manufacturing is completed, people are getting their games all over the world. Uh, I saw somebody got theirs in Belgium yesterday. Um, it, it's been really, really well received, and I couldn't be happier. Is it, like, a weird thing to you that you can just go onto Amazon and just type in fire in the library and see something that you've created up there. Absolutely. It's absolutely weird. It's a total trip. Um, sharing the Amazon links, uh, on social media, the day that, uh, it became available on Amazon was like, wow, like now I don't have to just like find people at conventions or, you know, talk to my friends for, to be able to share my games with people. I can just go, Oh, I've got this thing. You can go to Amazon. Amazon, a place you already go to, whoa, whoa, to go whoa. check it out. <laughs> the, the, this this brings up a whole new gamut of things I didn't even think of going into this. Like, you're a content creator. That's where I know you from originally is, you know, you're a podcaster, mm -hmm. you do reviews. Mm -hmm. And if you were to do those Amazon affiliate links that you are supposed to get like a, a portion of the sale whenever you recommend a game. Can you do that for something that you are the person who's behind it? I mean, I I don't imagine Amazon has too many scruples about conflicts of interest and that kind of stuff. I, I honestly don't know. Um, it's probably not a bad idea. I haven't actually looked into it. I probably should. Um, I was just so like excited to actually see something that I created out where the public could find it. Because the Kickstarter, um, our Kickstarter audience is amazing. Like the game wouldn't have existed without them. It was absolutely magical to see it fund in three hours and to be present along the rest of the journey as more and more people signed up for this thing that I made that I hoped would uh, appeal to them and make them happy. Um, but to now, like, we have bigger, like, we have longer legs than just the Kickstarter. Like, the Kickstarter was very much the start of things um, for most people. Uh, not for us, obviously. We'd already been in the trenches for a while. But for most people, like, the Kickstarter was where, oh, so this is a thing. Cool. Let me, you know, plunk down some cash and, you know, check it out. Now um, we're at the point where it's a, like, living 
breathing entity out there on the net that like people could just stumble upon. Um, you know, it, it, it helps if it's promoted or if it's talked about, but it's on Amazon. You can look it up. Like if you have any inkling, uh, to, you can just find it. And, um, it's very weird for me to be in that kind of a position. Um, like this past weekend, uh, I was at unpub in Baltimore, uh, the unpublished convention. This is my fifth unpub. Um, and uh, we actually had people approaching us with their copies of Fire in the Library to sign, and I've <laughs> I've never been I've never been asked to sign anything, and so like I'm sitting there with this game in my hand, and I'm like, you do realize the second I touch Sharpie to the cover of this that you can't get rid of it, like you're stuck with this one. Is that okay? <laughs> like you know, you may not want me to do this just so you can offload it in the secondary market if you ever you know want to. And they're like, no, 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 seriously, sign it, please. And you know, me and John both signing. Uh, the cover of it, like right underneath our names on the front, was a very surreal experience. Do you <laughs> sign it as Tony Miller or as the Bearded Rogue or Tony the Bearded Rogue Miller? Uh, I sign it as Tony Miller. Um, the um, the Bearded Rogue moniker has kind of just become how I'm known online, but the like official name on there. I actually have a copy here that's been signed by me and John because we were like, well, if we're going to sign everything, we might as well sign each other's, right? There you so, go. I like that. that. That's a like a sign of a true partnership right there. Well, you know, he's the game wouldn't exist without John and the game wouldn't exist without me. And that's pretty much where all of our designs are at this point. Um, you know, we started off as just two... Uh, game designers who were attending the same board game night and started working together, like giving each other feedback. And soon the feedback bled it to the point where we weren't sure whose game was whose and whose game, you know, like which game was mine and which game was his. We didn't know. They were all ours at that point. Um, and so we just kind of ran with it. And Fire in the Library is the first one that uh, really caught a publisher's attention and got out there. And, um, it's been really big for us. Um, at BGGCon last year was when we got to see one of the first production copies. Uh, the copies that got sent over for Carla and Nick and everybody at Weird Giraffes to verify that everything was correct. Well, she sent a copy to Board Game Geek Con, even though she didn't go, uh, to make sure that John and I could have one. And, like, holding it in our hands for the first time... Like, the only experience that... There, there are two experiences in my life that surpass it. One is seeing my wife at the end of the aisle on our wedding day, and two is seeing my son in the delivery room the day that he was born. That's it. Like and some powerful moments, and yeah, yeah I, I was actually I I had some questions in advance of this, and the, that was one of the things that I was thinking about is is you are someone who has depended on games in many stages of your life. I'm thinking a lot about the conversation that we had. Uh, last time where we were talking about your early childhood, eventually your time in the military and your time after the military and games have been so important to you as as an outlet uh, and as like a validation uh, of uh, yourself and forming a community and now as your role as a podcaster and game designer, the, this seems like it, it would 
lend a sort of legitimacy and like mm-hmm. validation of many pursuits that you've had throughout your life. And I got to imagine that is incredibly powerful. Oh, absolutely. Um, you know, my podcast has been around. We're starting on um, our fourth season. Like we started on our fourth season with a, a brand new host. Um, it used to be myself, Ian Zhang, and Gil Hova. Gil Hova has moved on to Ludology. Uh, so we brought on the incredible uh, Dan uh, Let's Ring of Letterman Games uh, as the third host. And so, like, we're finding a new dynamic and everything. But I've been, you know, for three and a half years now on a podcast as a game designer representing game designers uh, and telling them how to break into the industry. And this is my break. Like, <laughs> you know, it's one of those, like, I know they say fake it until you make it, but it really feels like it's kind of been that kind of a process. Like, I've been trying to make sure that I share where I'm at with things to other people so that they don't get discouraged, so that they know that it's all part of the process and there's no one true way for anyone to get into the industry. Like, that's what our podcast is all about. But this was really my break. Um, has it actually broken down any doors for you yet? Like, have you gotten offers to look at other game designs, invitations to pitch? Has it given you essentially like a line item on your resume that you can bring to other publishers when you're checking out what they, they may be interested at say unpub, you know, like what is this doing for you in a practical sort of way? So I'll say um, yes and no. So the board game community is incredibly friendly. So being a part of the community and contributing to the community in some fashion opened a lot of doors. Like I was already known by most publishers. Um, you know, I see Scott Gata at a convention. I say hi to Scott Gata at a convention. You know, he runs Renegade, one of the biggest shows out there, and he knows who I am on site. So it's um, it's not it's such a tight knit community that there isn't a lot of that, but there is an aspect for a first time designer that they are taking a risk on you. Mm-hmm. You're not an established name. You're not a, a, in wrestling. They would say an established draw. Like they don't know that you can pull money yet. They know that you're good. They know that you're good to work with. Um, and they know that you're part of the community and people know who you are. So all of those are a certain type of cachet. But until there's a physical, tangible object that is moving dollars and cents around, you're a risk. And you're a rather large risk. Um because it is a business and they are looking to make money off of it. I've never had a publisher completely reject sitting down and listening to a pitch they're willing to hear from pretty much anybody as long as they have the time and you approach them in a professional manner um you know don't just go accosting them in elevators or at dinner with game pitches (laughs) but if you set up this is an la come on (laughs) you know you're not you're not a waiter trying to pitch someone your screenplay yeah no one wants to read your script it's just that's just the way it is but 
Like if you set up meetings at conventions or you ask them if they have time or you're at one of the conventions that isn't as much of a working convention like Board Game Geek uh, or Origins even, um, something that isn't Essen or Gen Con or um, the major sales conventions, um, almost all of them would be willing to you know, let them let you bend their ear for five minutes um, without any like you could be some rando off the street and they would be willing to hear you out. But there's a, another level of it where they come to you right, asking right, right. what you have um, instead of having you come to them. And they still may not be interested in any of it at all, but they know you as a designer. They know that you can produce a product that sells, and they know that at some point you could work with a publisher well enough to actually get something out into the world. So you become more of a proven commodity at that point. Has this process at all changed how you think about game design itself in any way? I mean, obviously you, you completed the game design and then it had to go through development, going back and forth Mm -hmm. from Carla and playtesting Mm -hmm. and you, uh, and you and your partner, obviously, you know, spruce things up, tightened things up. But at a certain point, there's this whole publication process that's involved with the kicks starter and then the subsequent development and then the designing of the game Mm -hmm. has any of that actually impacted how you are designing going forward i will say this uh publishing is a whole other animal to designing and the big dichotomy that exists in the board game world that a lot of designers aren't present to until they go through this piece of it is that designers are designing a game Publishers are creating a product. What is a product isn't necessarily what is like what is best for a product isn't necessarily what is best for the game. Mm-hmm. There's mm-hmm. always trade-offs back and forth. So if a game has a certain price point that you're looking to hit because that's what will sell, it's that weight of game, it's that type of game, it's that style of game, there are certain limitations on what components you can use. As a game designer, you can literally just throw anything you want at the table until it comes time to publish it. And then you have to start looking at things like, well, what is my margin on this? Can we really afford to have this many tokens in a game that we're offering at this price point? Um, And all of those financial realities come in, whereas in the game design world before publication, it's literally just the sky's the limit. Well, how does my game work? It can be anything. I just think it up. Right, right. Um, But at the same time, now you have so much more experience uh, on that publishing mm-hmm. side. And if you're wanting to get more games published, you can either design a game to be your ideal game or a game that you think would be fun for everyone, or you can design a game that is the seed of what a publisher could envision actually making it to the market. And that way you could start making design decisions that would be more palatable and and more saleable for that publisher. Yes, absolutely. And starting to think about like where certain price points in the gaming world are and if they're moving or not. Um, It used to be that gaming price points were pretty solid at 10, 25 and 50. 
If uh, you've noticed over the past years, they've kind of moved up to 15, 25, and 60 um, in a lot of regards. Um, And a lot of that isn't changing how much money you can use for the production of the game. It's strictly based on how much more expensive it is to manufacture the game, ship the game, and all of the other expenses. So it's not something that, well, suddenly we found we can spend more money when making it because we can charge more. It's we have to charge more because it costs more to make. Um, But it um, it, it has definitely changed the thought process in design where I'm, when I'm designing a game, there's much more of a consideration where for what level of experience is this? What kind of price point am I looking at? Is this like a fast little filler game? Are we talking a 10 to $20 range game somewhere in there? If so, there's only so many things that you can put in a game at that range. Like cards are probably okay, but there's, you know, you can't throw custom dice in a design unless there's very, very few of them and not much else. Um, so there are considerations that, like, I was aware of before being published, but now actually start much earlier in the design phase being a thing. Um, Also, I've learned uh, to be much more clear about what a design is. Um, Not particularly like how it's all going to work or all of that stuff. That's all figured out through iteration. But what kind of experience am I looking to design um, when I'm sitting down to create this game? Who is the audience for this game? And that gives me more of an idea of which publishers might be interested rather than I've made this really cool thing. I hope you like it and (laughs) kind of pitching it to everybody, which is very much where a lot of designers start. They start with the, you know, uh, you know, would you talk to me for five minutes? I've made this really this thing. I think it's really cool. Would you like to like put money behind it and put it out on shelves? Right, right. It's like a songwriter. You got to know when to pitch a song to Taylor Swift and when to pitch a song to Metallica. The two different, two different outlets. And if you're a brand new person, maybe you need to start pitching to people who aren't on that level first. Okay, so one of the things about the 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 process and this being your first time and being someone who talks mm-hmm. to people, as you said earlier, about breaking into board games, what was the the most illuminating part of the whole thing to you? Like the the most surprising element, the the thing that either broke real bad or was just incredibly uplifting, and you just had no idea that you should expect that. The day that we launched uh, the Kickstarter. Um, I had just woken up. I'm West Coast, and uh, Carla is uh, out on the other coast. (laughs) Um, And so she'd already been up for a few hours and was ready to launch the Kickstarter. And she's like, I'm going to push the button. And I'm like, I I don't think you should push the button. I'm very nervous. I I don't think that, like, it's going to um, blow up immediately. I'm expecting, (laughs) like, a long, uh, long process where we're, you know... Uh, marketing and constantly like trying to pull in backers every day and that this is going to be a thing. And she's like, I'm going to push the button. I'm like, don't push the button. And she's like, I already pushed the button. (laughs) And so she's like Adrian Veet at the end of Watchmen. It's like, you fool. You think I would be explaining to you my grand plan if I didn't already make sure it was underway? Exactly. So (laughs) as soon as she hit the button, um, backers started coming in and we started sharing all over the place on our social 
social medias and various groups that she already knew about from previous Kickstarters and Facebook groups and stuff that we were already a part of. And um, the backers just kept rolling in. And after three hours, like we were funded. And that was incredibly surprising to me um, as a thing initially because, like I said, I'd seen other Kickstarters that had been, um, you know, up until the last minute they're uh, working on hitting the funding. And we were there in three hours. And then it was a question of, well, what do we do now? Like, we have a list of things that we wanted to put up as stretch goals, but, like, we're already at that point. It's time to start, like, you know, talking about the stretch goals, and we're three hours in. Um, so that was incredibly surprising. And what was most surprising about it for me was not, like, any arguments with my own uh, self-esteem or, or my own self-doubt. It was um, very clear that people showed up on that first day because of all of the groundwork that all of us had done for months before we ever got to Kickstarter. Um, I, as a designer, had been talking about my designs on my Twitter. I still do it to this day. Um, I don't believe there's any benefit to being secretive about what you're working on. Even if something that you're designing ends up not working out and just completely disappears from your stream uh, at some point. Like, talking to people about what you're working on is... Uh, I mean, it's effective marketing, even if that's not what you're intending it as. Right, right. Um, people were aware that Fire in the Library was a game that I was working on. Um, you know, people who follow me on Twitter knew that that was a thing. Um, they were aware when it was signed with Weird Giraffe Games. People who follow Carlo were aware that it was a thing before, you know, several months, six months or more before we went to Kickstarter with it. So, um it was just very clear that we had done a good job of making sure that people were aware that it was a thing, uh, that we uh, were involved, and then also uh, doing like just that communication work and being part of the community laid the groundwork for that to happen. If we just put it up on Kickstarter and nobody had known anything about any of us or what it was, um, it definitely wouldn't have gone as well. You know, it was Carla's third Kickstarter um, after uh, Superhack uh, Overdrive and um, Stellar Leap. Um, it was my first published game. People were aware of that both from my Kickstarter and from my podcast. Um, you know, I didn't start the podcast in order to become known in the community. I started the podcast because as a designer who was new to the industry, I, it seemed horribly opaque and complex and difficult to figure out where you were even supposed to go to start doing this thing that I already loved of designing games and sharing them with people. But if you're already part of the community, if you've already laid that groundwork or been involved in the community, then people are aware of it, and it's more effective marketing than any amount of advertisements that you could buy on uh, various sites. Um, it's more effective than anything else that you could do. I mean, being part of the community and the community turns out for you um, has really been the biggest like eye-opening thing for me. Now... 
when when the next game that I have shows up, is it going to be as perfect a storm as, you know, it's Carla's first game that's not uh, Carla's first published game that's not designed by her. My first published game ever. Um, it's got Beth Sobel's amazing artwork on it. Uh, Katie Cow uh, did a fantastic job with all of the graphic design and the logo and the product presentation and all that. Is it going to be such a perfect storm? I can't guarantee that, but um, I can guarantee that the people out there in the community are going to at least be aware of it because I'm not going anywhere. <laughs> See, that's what I like about you, Tony, is that you maintain such a positivity about you, but you're fully aware that at any second the other shoe is going to drop. Or at least you can envision that shoe dropping. Even in how you're talking about it right now, it's like, well, you know, that, that other Kickstarter down the road. And I think that, that that's one of the things that I and many, many people relate to you on is that there's a vulnerability to you. And I, I was thinking about, as you were describing all these people showing up and the mm -hmm. massive amount of response that you get, that's something that you, you see time and time again in Kickstarters is that if mm -hmm. you have an audience, if you have a, a, a following, especially as a podcaster and for all the other reasons that you listed, the, the fans of Carla's, uh, the fans of Weird Giraffe in general, uh, people who were following on social media, they're showing up and they want you to succeed, right? Because they, mm -hmm. they, they want a good game, but they also want to see your guys' success. But then it gets out into the world and it becomes a, a broader thing. And people who don't know you, who don't care about you, who don't mm -hmm. care about Weird Giraffe, they also see the game. And you seem like a, a pretty sensitive guy. Was there worry about, you know, a, a degree of imposter syndrome or something mm -hmm. like as soon as this gets out into the hands of everyone else and they find out that this is actually terrible and people who just supported this because they like me and, and this is all going to be awful. Oh my God. Where is this going to go? Oh, oh that's, that's a worry that follows me around every day. And, um, okay. Uh, there, okay. There are and a lot both. of, yeah, there are, there are, I think anybody who creatively puts anything out into the world has fears about how it's going to be received. And uh, the initial response being as overwhelming as it was, um, what I, like I was very, very emotional um, in the thank you message that I recorded the day that we launched after we funded. I couldn't help but cry. Um, it was pretty much necessary. But like you said, those were people who'd kind of been following along. They were aware of it. Um, you know, they were part of the journey. Along the way, they saw the game in development. They saw the partnership uh, between John and I and Carla. They saw all of the like steps of the process. They got to see all of the artwork as Beth started with just sketches and eventually got all fleshed out. And they got to see the final cards and everything long before it ever hit Kickstarter. Um, all of the people who were already following us were part of the process. And like you said, then we get to the next next milestone. Now we're on Amazon. And it's a product that, um, you know, lots of people don't follow Kickstarter. There are a lot of people who don't know who Tony Miller or John Prather or uh, Weird Giraffe Games are. Um, you know, board games being a small industry, 
You know, we, th- we're making more money than we ever have before, but we still aren't in like the public consciousness the way that a lot of other creative industries are at this point. Um, you know, somebody brings up Metallica, most people are going to have at least a knowledge that they are a musical act. Um, somebody brings up Uwe Rosenberg at a standard party, and while a board gamer will know who that is, the average person on the street is not going to get the relevance of that. So it's still a small industry um, from that side of things. You're crossing my brain synapses right now. <laughs> like, all of a sudden, I'm imagining, like, a hot new remix joint where somehow <laughs> it's like Metallica presents Agricola. Yeah, there you go. I mean, Metallica and Agricola have the same kind of, like, pattern. I'm thinking we could have metal band t-shirts with board game names on them. But anyway, um, <laughs> alternate marketing uh, and product creation aside... Um, there is an element of – so if somebody who has absolutely no in, emotional investment in me as a person or Weird Draft Games as a brand or anything um, sees this, how is it going to go? How is it going to land? Um, I think one of the biggest things that we discovered as we were doing this is the emotional attachment that people have to libraries and books, which – Shouldn't have come as a surprise because I designed a game about libraries and books because of how much libraries and books mean to me. Um, you know, the mechanism existed first and the uh, theme ended up becoming attached to it because of a meme that I saw on Facebook about, you know, you're a book nerd if you're angry <laughs> about the fire in the Library of Alexandria. And never in my life had I been more sure that I was a book nerd than that moment. Um, but like that's a meme for a reason because people genuinely care about libraries and books and so one of the things that we found is that there's a lot of people who you know wouldn't know me from adam or have never heard of weird giraffe games but it's a it's a game that is about saving books from a burning library and that's a visceral thing for people there's an emotional connection to that like some people have called it a horror game Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. like it's it's literally like something that would keep them awake at night just thinking about the prospect of there being a fire in a library is is a horror horrifying thing for them um which i didn't mean to keep anyone up at night Obviously, what's wild to me is that there's lots of libraries that have lending board game sections mm-hmm. and you could have a copy of Fire in the Library at a library and God forbid that library catches on fire. You're inviting uh-huh. something here. Uh, it might be <laughs> invoking something. You're playing uh, with powerful forces that you might not understand here, Tony. Uh, yeah, I would I would like to believe that um, life has proven to me that I do not actually possess that much power uh, <laughs> to be invoking fate in such a manner. Um, but uh, if, if I was aware of that power, let's just say I would use it in other ways. Right. Uh, <laughs> certainly it wouldn't be to burn down libraries, but... Um, Part of the Kickstarter campaign was uh, that we offered people the ability to purchase a copy for their libraries. Um, So there are several libraries around the country, um, and I know definitely in the U.S. I don't know how far it extended, but there are several libraries in the U.S. that now have Fire in the Library on their shelves as something that people could check out and play from their library. Um, 
And uh, I think that's the 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 biggest thing that I've um, – or one of the weirdest things that I've had to adapt to is just what you said. Um, it's one thing for me to share a game with somebody personally. Like we're at a convention and I go, hey, would you be interested in playing something that I've designed? Um, regardless of what stage of, of game it is, whether it's just fully prototype, you know, handwritten index cards or it's something that's much closer to a finished product – um, like Fire in the Library was just before the Kickstarter. Um, there's a personal relationship there. Um, I'm sharing with that person directly. And now something that I've created is out in the world and is being shared with people. And I don't have a direct hand in that interaction. I don't have a, um, you know, a way of like managing that relationship. Um, and, uh, it's interesting because I'm now uh, very much at a place where I'm realizing like people will take from your art what they take from your art. Mm-hmm. To some people, Fire in the Library is a horror game. Right. For some people, that's exciting. For some people, that's not. That's not personal to me. That's their relationship with the work that I've created. Um, but that's something that I'm not used to doing. Like I'm not an I'm not uh, an artist of any variety. I don't paint. I don't draw. I don't sculpt. Um, you know, I have never really been a musician. You know, I screamed loudly in a cover band in high school, but it's not like it was a, like a paying gig or anything. Okay. Um, Before we go any further, give me at least two songs that you covered. Two songs that I covered. Um, well, let's see. Uh, we used to cover Stained Mud Shovel. This should okay. This I probably, like it. This will probably date me um, as far as because what was popular at the time was what we were covering. Um, but that was one of the songs. And then um, another song was a song called Pain by a band named Stereo Mud. I don't know Stereo Mud, but I am very familiar with Mud Shovel. Yeah, uh, Stain's first album hit at a very important time in my life, and I related to a lot of it. Their later stuff, not as much, but their first album really, uh, really worked for me, and that song was definitely the uh, one that I latched on to. Totally um, plus, agree. Anyway. Plus, my bass player thought it was really fun to play because exactly, it's a really interesting. I know, right? It's it's a really interesting uh, fingering in that you're actually sliding on the strings. Mm-hmm. Um, rather than uh than changing notes it's actually the movement of your hand on the uh the neck of the bass that uh, of the guitar rather that changes what notes you're playing rather than changing your fingerings it's a very interesting song regardless but anyway <laughs> we digress sorry i derailed that but you know it, oh it, no that's perfectly- the audience comes to understand that if anyone talks about anything musical on the cardboard herald i'm going to to chase that down until i get some oh. sort of idea of what was really going on absolutely absolutely um i'm familiar with that and that's why uh, <laughs> i was more than happy to oblige um but you know i haven't put a lot of art out into the world so I'm not as experienced with people relating to my art without me being a part of that. And so it's very interesting now to see some of the stuff that's come in. Some people like it. Some people don't like it. That's kind of the nature of the beast. Um, I have avoided pretty much looking at the um, ratings on like board game geek and stuff. Like I, I'm, I, I don't want to be one of those people who's obsessively staring at what everybody's rated it on Board Game Geek and trying to figure it out. But I also haven't shied away from actual commentary or feedback. Right. Um, 
a number doesn't mean much to me, honestly. Like, um, I'm much more interested in, you know, the person who sat down and couldn't play it at all. Um, you know, whether it was they couldn't uh, parse the rule book or, you know, it just didn't work for them in whatever reason. I'm interested in that. I'm also interested in the people who really, really enjoyed it and what did they enjoy about it? Where did I connect with them? Um, you know, there's one... Um, person who reviewed it whose daughter actually stole their review copy and brought it to a sleepover saying that it was her favorite game of all time um and she had to introduce it to her friends and play it with them and uh even if it was only her favorite game of all time in that moment for that night that was something that happened and something that i contributed to like i put that out into the world and that's something I'm going to hang on to long after, you know, she's grown up, gone to college, forgotten my game even exists. Um, you know, if that happens in that way, I mean, who knows? I can't predict the future. But for that one instant in time, my game, something that I created, was her favorite game of all time. And so those are the things that I'm interested in. Like, why was it her favorite game? Why did it not work for this person? Why is this person, you know, you know, what, what is it about the game that worked and didn't work for people? And I'm mostly interested in that so that I can use that going forward um, and broaden my skill set. You know, I want to connect with people more. And I would be much happier with a smaller audience that absolutely loves what I'm doing than a broad audience that is very meh about what I'm doing. Gotcha. Um, gotcha. I, co I come from, you know, heavy metal, uh, background. I'm, you know, used to, used to dealing with people who are very passionate of a very small subset of things. <laughs> <laughs> so that's kind of like, that's kind of like how I am a fan. Like, if I'm a fan of what somebody's doing, then I'm pretty much all in. Like, I'm a diehard fan, but there's not, like, I don't have as broad of a spectrum, or at least I didn't uh, have as broad of a spectrum of things that I appreciated. So, you know, I would rather have, a, a, you know, a thousand people that absolutely get what I'm doing and connect with me on that level than, you know, a million people who, you know, could take or leave what I'm doing. Now, Ideally, you'd have a million people who would absolutely love what you're doing yep. because financially those those are the realities. Um, but that's um, the other piece of stuff that I can learn from listening to feedback and hearing how people relate to my work, especially those people who don't know me and didn't follow me and aren't already existing fans for one reason or another right um, right i'm very interested in what they have to say you know if you've never listened to my podcast if you've never looked at my twitter feed if you've never met me in person or talked to me or engaged with me in any way shape or form i definitely want to know your feedback because the art kind of has to stand on its own at that point mm -hmm. you know what i created has to kind of stand on its own and i want to know how you perceive that from where you are so Numbers don't matter to me, um, and uh, I try to avoid looking at them because I know that it's like any game. It's not a game for everyone. Some people aren't going to like it because it's too luck-based. Some people aren't going to like it because um, you know they just can't get over the horror that is burning books. But 
there are a lot of people who appear to enjoy what I, what I've put out there and who seem to be liking it. And, um, you know, I need to know all of those perspectives in order to keep doing it going forward. Right. Right. And I think that's exactly it. It's all about the drive forward. You know, you, you get the feedback, you know, I, I think it's the same thing with content creation for me. Anyhow, you know, I, I, of course, would like to reach a larger audience with podcasts, with video reviews, with written reviews, whatever it is. But I'm most interested in what is something applicable to the next thing that I do, because I'm going to be doing this regardless. And so I'm not going to sweat too much about the momentary did this video do as good as last video Mm -hmm. did that do as good as last video i'm more going to consider from the process of creating something from my own perspective what were the things that were valuable to take as lessons for the next one Mm -hmm. and also the feedback of audience the people who are actually engaging enough to comment on it either negatively or positively and utilizing that for future stuff i i have very much a if you build it they will come type of mentality mm-hmm. you know i'm just yep. going to keep on doing this regardless of where the numbers are until it's no longer fun for me to do so i might as well yep. try to do the best version of what i can do and that that's where the feedback becomes meaningful that's not mm-hmm. 200 versus 2000 versus 20000 views that's comment about oh that point really solidified things for me or that made a difference in my understanding of this or i really connected when you were having that conversation with tony miller about the other shoe dropping you know whatever it Mm -hmm. is those are things that are are meaningful that that affects the the feeling of whether or not you're impacting someone and also Mm -hmm. the the feeling of whether you're being successful in what you set out to do yeah, all feedback is meaningful. Not all feedback is immediately actionable. Um, and right. <laughs> to to relate it to content creation, like on our podcast, we're now, like I said, we're in season four now. We're midway through season four. Um, so we've been doing it for three years prior to this. And when we started, um, we weren't exactly sure what it was going to be. We knew that we wanted to represent the, the designer, the developer, and the publisher in the industry. And we wanted to interview and talk with people who were already already in the industry about how they got there, what they did to get there. Um, And as we went along, we listened to the feedback we were getting from the listeners. And one of the things we got was they wanted it to be more of a conversation and less of a rote set of questions that we ask every person. Right, right, right. um, So that each interview was more tailor-made to the people. And like – in the beginning, it was great to have tra- uh, training wheels and to have set questions that you ask people so that you always have something to fall back on. But at this point, you know, we've done it for three years going on four years. And now, like, we start with the same question every time and we end with the same question every time. But we let the conversation in the middle of the podcast vary based on where the guest is going and what their expertise is. Um, Mm -hmm. So if I'm talking to a retailer, I'm going to be asking them different questions than if I'm talking to a designer. And if I'm talking to this designer, designer one versus designer two, I'm going to have different questions for them as well because their experiences, their games, their, you know, humanity is different. Um, 
and that was something that uh, really kind of broke open our show, um, particularly as far as like numbers go. We found that the numbers changed. I don't look at the numbers, but it was feedback that we'd gotten that was very clearly something that the audience wanted. And so we went, sure, we can do that. And the audience, you know, <laughs> rewarded us in kind. Um so, you know, one of the other things that we're doing now is we're, we're making a very conscious effort to be more diverse in our guest list. Um, we're very conscious of the fact that we are a podcast with three um, straight white dudes. That's just the reality of it. Um, like, they've actually joked that, you know, the collective noun for a group of white males is a podcast. Right, right, um, right. So... You know, we could have more people who look like us on our podcast um, and just talk to exclusively those people indefinitely. There's a lot of, you know, white bearded men in the board game industry, if you hadn't noticed. Um, <laughs> so we could talk to a whole bunch of those people or we could try to do what we set out from the beginning and get as broad of an experience as possible, get as many different people and as many different types of people as possible. Um, and so we've put a much bigger focus now on uh, including uh, women and people of color and trying to do so at a higher ratio. Um, right now we're trying to go two to one for every one um, you know, white dude that we have on the podcast. And it's not because we don't love white dudes. We're all white dudes ourselves. But <laughs> if, if that one – if that one episode that we record with a person of color can help bring more people of color into the industry, I want that. I want everybody to come play games. And so even as a podcast with three white dude hosts, um, we can try to help shape the industry to be what we want it to be and what we want to see. And games are for everybody. I want the breadth and depth of experience that only um, – that a non-homogenous group can give me totally you yeah. know it's an admirable goal and i think that you there's there's many people working from many avenues to 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 help out with that goal there's a lot of people uh trying to push back as well but in my experience i think uh for the most part the way the wind is blowing is that people want inclusion but it's not enough to want it it's more that you have to take action and the fact that you're taking action that's important stuff but i do want to hit on a couple things before i let you go uh, a couple twitter questions because we're both podcasters we're content creators we are people on social media who interact with audiences and while i don't always reach out to twitter for questions i thought in this case we know a lot of shared people through social mm -hmm. media and so i would just see what's up see if anyone had anything to say and some of these things i have no idea what they're talking about whatsoever <laughs> so i just picked a few of them and i was going to just shotgun these answers at you so sure. john at john texmo over at stone circle games and i think he's mm -hmm. part of another collective now maybe i'm sorry john mm. for not knowing that off the top of my head but he asks how does one break into board games one word answer only what do you got networking mm. I, I hate that word personally I feel like making friends is better but the way you break into board games is to make connections and networking is the closest one word answer I can give for that 
That's a good answer. I'll I'll talk from the content creation perspective, and I'll say unabashedly. If you, if you are unabashedly presenting your authentic self, you you are going to um, be much more successful because you won't be hamstringing everything. You won't be meticulously editing anything. You will be iterating on yourself constantly. Mm-hmm. That wasn't a one-word answer, so I failed you, John. <laughs> <laughs> but Tony had you covered. So uh, his follow-up question is, how is he such a darned nice guy? And I think the way that we can rephrase that is, how do you maintain such a, a kind and positive demeanor, even though we know, me and you, as well as everyone else listening to this podcast, that you are this this sensitive guy who has... Uh, the 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 same issues that I have about uh, are you good enough? Are you an imposter? Do you have um, what it takes to succeed? Tons of self esteem issues. How do you maintain being such a, well, a kind, considerate, and, and positive guy in spite of all of that? Well, I think um, oddly enough, all of that stuff is right at the heart of where it comes from. So mm-hmm. I'm. I'm only where I'm at in this industry because of my persistence and other people. The other people are required. Like, I had to put in the work, but I don't get anywhere without anybody else. That's the the truth for everybody in this industry. Nobody gets anywhere without other people. You know, at a minimum, you need an illustrator, a graphic designer, a developer, a publisher, a, you know, marketer. Like, there's so many different people involved in the creation of every product that if you can do all of it alone, um, then you are Ryan Lockett. But no, um, <laughs> if you can do all of it, if you can do all of it by yourself, then you're an absolute prodigy. Um, so, um, knowing that I need other people and knowing that other people need other people. Um, it was really easy for me, especially before I was even looking to get something on Kickstarter before I was even at that stage or ready. It was more, uh, it was easy for me to offer myself up to do some of those things for other people or to help other people. Um, the entire motivation behind the podcast is because I was brand new to the industry and went, I have no idea what I'm doing here, but there's nobody creating content to help anybody out in that regard. And so Gil and Ian and I started the podcast to give people a roadmap or to give people some information or knowledge that we didn't have when we were starting out. And now there's multiple other podcasts, fantastic podcasts that are out there that are directed at people looking to get into the industry rather than people looking for the latest game review or what to buy next or, you know, the consumer focused podcasts are very, very important. And like, I'm in no way diminishing what they do, but it's a different audience. And, um, you know, if you give, you get back. I think that's the succinct way of, of looking at it. And my own, personal hangups and ideas of not being good enough or, um, working to try to, um, what's the word I'm looking for? Just to try to be part of the community that I'm so hungry for. Um, those efforts have paid off, um, immensely in friends, in success, in knowledge, in skills. Um, it's been wonderful, honestly. I like it. 
I like it. Okay, so the prototyper, Gavin, down under in Australia, currently listed as board game designer number 78534, asks, what was it like working at Ponderosa Steakhouse? Would you like yeah. an interview at Scofton, which Scofton mm-hmm. was a board game that he was kickstarting and is currently developing in order to bring back to Kickstarter again here soon. I had yes. a chance to review that game. That game's awesome. Uh, but yes. so, <laughs> but so, tell me about this. Yeah, so um, prior to uh, anybody who listened to the previous podcast that I was on last year will know of my uh, bout with homelessness. And um, Ponderosa Steakhouse was where I was working prior to being laid off. Uh, And then um, a whole bunch of other stuff happened that led to me being on the street and then joining the Army. If you want to know more about that, by all means, go listen to the previous episode because we talk about it pretty extensively for a board game podcast. Um, (laughs) But... Um, what I will say is that um, I actually really liked working at a Ponderosa Steakhouse. It was a pretty sweet gig. Um, I was uh, I was 18 and then 19. I actually turned 19 while I was working there. And they were paying me one and a half salaries for two jobs. Um, because I didn't have school, I had graduated at that point. I was doing the dishes and I was working the register. Because they didn't have enough dishes during the daytime hours in my tiny town to justify hiring a full-time dishwasher. So they instead decided they would uh, make sure that the evening shift wasn't set up for failure by having someone do the dishes. And they would compensate me half of that employee's wage in order to do so. Nice. So it was a really sweet gig. I really liked it until I was laid off. Um, uh, I, I love food. Uh, anybody who's ever met me will know this. So um, an all-you-can-eat buffet that also focuses on steak, I am a, a meat eater, um, is uh, probably one of the greatest things of all time. Um, and, and tell you what, anyone who's a dishwasher, you're going to get a good workout out of that. You probably had the best pre-army arms that you've ever <laughs> had at that point. Oh, yeah, yeah. It was, um, it was a very, uh, very interesting uh, job because it was – because we were fewer staff members than a full complement during the day, during the week, all of us did a little bit of everything. So, like, I learned a little bit about how to work the grill. I learned, you know, a little bit about how to uh, take care of the buffet. Like, all of us had to kind of fill in for each other, especially if any of us wanted sick days because, you know, it was a restaurant job. <laughs> so... Um, sick days were kind of hard to come by, but if you could cover for each other, then you could get away with taking them, which, um, everybody, including the people eating the food there actually benefited from. Nice. Um, <laughs> but overall, yeah, I, I, I liked it. I haven't worked in restaurants since my time in the army. Um, so it's been, uh, wow. It's, it's been like 15 years go getting close to, no, it's been more than that. It's been 19 years. Um, so yeah, uh, how do you take your steak? It's been a while. Um, so medium rare, right answer. Only, only because I want my steak to be warm. I would eat it rare, but I've been to too many places that take it right out of the refrigerator, put it on there for three seconds and then put it on my plate and it's still cold in the middle gotcha, that gotcha. I, that I have to have it at least medium rare to make sure that I'm eating it warm. Um, anything more than that is overkill. <laughs> yep. I, I like it. I like it. Okay. <laughs> Moving on to the last Twitter asker that I pulled for here. This is Patrick Hillier. Hillier. Mm-hmm. 
Uh, Over the Hillier asks, what's longer, his hair or his beard? That's a one word answer. What do we got? Uh, hair. Okay. Was, has he ever burned a book? No. Not even like, you know, an ex-girlfriend's like diary that she handed to you or something like that. And never, uh, no, I've never had I've never had that kind of access to um, ex girlfriend contraband that that would ever be a possibility. So no, I've I've never actually burned a book. Oh, okay, you you've never been on the receiving end of here's everything that I actually think of you. Good for no. you. I like. It. I have I have <laughs> I have inadvertently destroyed a book before. I was actually um, riding my bike and it was wet out, and I dropped my backpack into a puddle, and the book that was in the bottom of my backpack quickly absorbed all of the water from said puddle and became just basically a block of wood at that point. Um, but I've never willingly destroyed a book. How about a book that you have read so much that it is nearly destroyed? Is there like a book in your collection that you refuse to get rid of, but it has been torn to shreds? Yeah, there are a couple of them. Probably the biggest one is a book that in physical form is completely out of print. You can get it digitally now, Mm -hmm. Um, but it's The Blade of Tashal by Matthew Woodring Stover. Um, it's part of his um, Acts of Cain series, which is one of my favorite series of novels at all time. It's um, it's both science fiction and fantasy and manages to be uh, extremely adult um, in multiple different directions. But uh, it's the second book in the series, and it's no longer in print, so... Um, I uh, I read those that whole series like once a year or so, and um, I can't imagine ever getting rid of it, even if I have to try to hold it together with scotch tape. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> I, I have one of those. It's a hardcover edition of a, a book you might not have heard of. It's called The Hobbit. Uh, little known <laughs> author, uh, I think his name is John Ronald or something. And uh, anyway, uh, it, it's a it's a book with an inscription from my mom uh, and like. Uh, I think it's the only thing that I own that she gave to me. So uh, I refuse to get rid of it. It's like this nice hardcover edition with beautiful illustrations. And my son loves it. And I'm terrified of my son touching it until he's just a little (laughs) bit older. Uh, So so he has his own copy of The Hobbit. We read from that copy of The Hobbit as well as his copy, uh, and that will be the one that's gifted to him when he's a little bit older and can understand there's like a an emotional context to the the physical Mm -hmm. property. Not like a financial context, but like an emotional uh, value there. It's great that you're able to get another copy so that he can actually enjoy the uh, story and form that connection before he uh, has to uh, interact with the much more um, I hesitate to use the word sacred but the much <laughs> yeah. more sacred uh, version of the same text right right so I I have trashed that book uh, with <laughs> uh, reckless abandon uh, both through my own neglect as a uh, as a young reader I think I got mm-hmm. around like 13 or 14 years old yeah uh, yep. and then uh, in subsequent rereadings with the delicacy that Indiana Jones might look at ancient transcripts <laughs> or something uh, as I, uh, I'm, I'm now imagining you with gloves goggles and tweezers turning pretty, each page pretty much I, I'm <laughs> treating it as if it were like 
like the original manuscript that Tolkien uh, handed in to to his publisher. You know that that's the carrot uh-huh. that I'm treating it. He, he gave it directly to your mom, and she bequeathed it to you. Exactly, and now this exactly. sacred artifact must be maintained. I gotcha. All right, let, let's take it with something more fun here. Last thing Patrick had to ask is, what is your current score in Two Truths and a Lie? I have won or tied for victory in every season that we've done so far out of the hosts. I also want to clarify that I am not good at this game. Um, <laughs> it's just everyone so, else is equal yes, or worse. So, <laughs> so me winning me winning is somebody who has just over a 50% uh, win ratio, basically. Um, now that was seasons one through three this season, uh, with Dan on the show, we now have a new competitor, um, and he is much better at this game, uh, than previous. So he's really like pushing, uh, pushing me to get better. Um, and, uh, I'm really enjoying that. And so far, uh, this season he's in the lead and I am in second place with, uh, Ian, whose score we will not mention. Um, <laughs> But uh, but it's it's a really fun thing that I really enjoy doing, and um, hopefully this season uh, Dan uh, will manage to steal the title away from me so that I don't have to feel so bad about being so bad at a game and yet still having the best score at it. <laughs> well, it's a fitting way to end your podcast and a fitting way to end our podcast talking about it. So what can we do in order to get all the bearded rogue goodness into our eyeballs onto our tables? Where's the best way of following you, Tony? Um, so if you're interested in anything that I personally am doing, then, uh, at bearded rogue on Twitter is the best place to go. If, um, anything I've said about my podcast has intrigued you. Um, or if you're somebody who's looking to break into the industry, then I can highly recommend at breaking into BG on Twitter. Um, um, you can also find Breaking Into Board Games on most of the uh, major podcast apps. Um, uh, it's out there on uh, iTunes and various other places. So um, feel free to look us up if uh, you're at all interested. Yep. Well, thank you for coming on to the show, Tony. Everyone in the audience, go check out some reviews of Fire in the Library. You can find it on Amazon right now. It is an awesome physical property. It has beautiful artwork, beautiful design, beautiful publishing all around, just like everyone involved put their hearts and souls into making something awesome. And I'm so glad that you came back onto the show, Tony, to talk about it. So take care, and we will talk to you again, man. Absolutely. Can't wait. As always, the Cardboard Herald is a completely free service focused on spotlighting games, gamers, and game creators. You can find all of our podcasts, including the Cardboard Herald and TCBH reviews, on iTunes, Stitcher, and our website. For more recommendations and reviews, you can also head over to our YouTube channel. We do not pay to advertise the show, so please continue spreading the word, following, liking, rating, and doing all the social media things. It truly does help us out a ton. If you'd like to drop us a line and maybe have your listener mail read on air, find us on Twitter at Cardboard Herald or send us an email to CardboardHerald at gmail.com or click the contact link on our page. Once again, thank you for listening. I've been Jack for the Cardboard Herald, and you keep on gaming.